0: Remain standing and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter sixteen, and um, we're going to remain standing in, in, in honor of the reading of God's Word. If you came here this morning, you don't have a Bible. That's quite all right. We have one that we've provided for you. It's in the seat in front of you, and um, in those Bibles, we're going to be on page. 498. And if you don't have a Bible that belongs to you and that uh, you need one, well, well, we're, this is your, your day because we want to give that to you as a gift. So you just take that Bible and, um, uh, and use it, read it and find the words of life within it. So uh, as I said, we're starting in Mark 16, we're going to begin in the very first verse. And this is what we read very similar to the passage that pastor David read earlier in the service. When the Sabbath was passed, And they went out from, uh, they went out and fled from the tomb, and trembling, and for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. May God bless the reading of His word. You may be seated. We can only barely appreciate the fact that the disciples of the Lord Jesus were in shock. Think about what they had just been through in the last several hours, a couple of days, G- Judas, one of the 12 disciples had, had completely turned traitor, had betrayed the Lord Jesus for a sum of money was ridden with guilt and had committed suicide. Peter, the, the uh, de facto leader of the band had uh, denied the Lord three times in, a, in an act of cowardice. And now Peter and the other 10 disciples are in hiding for fear that they're next. They had seen the brutal execution of Jesus, and so the disciples feared that the chief priests would now have the Romans crucify them as well, and that would just finally exterminate forever their little band of believers. And I'm here to tell you that there's never been a group of people more disappointed in all of history. They had placed all of their hopes on Jesus, every bit of them. They knew, they just knew that he was this long prophesied figure in in Judaism called the Messiah who would come and be their king and execute justice. He was the heir to David's throne. How could he now be dead? How could he be gone? How could those dreams be dashed? They remembered how he taught With such authority that the people heard him gladly, he worked miracles like no one had ever seen before. I mean, the blind saw, the lame walked, the deaf heard, the mute spoke, and even the dead were raised. Demons obeyed him. They cowered in fear and did exactly what he told them to do. And now he's gone. Peter had once confessed That Jesus was the Messiah before all of the rest, and and Jesus in that moment commended him for it. He, He said that, Peter, he said, you recognize this not by your own intuition, but by revelation directly from the Heavenly Father. And that same day that Peter had this revelation, Jesus told them that now they were going to Jerusalem, and he would be put on trial, and he would be abused, and he would even be crucified, even though he added that he would, would also rise from the dead, they, they thought that Jesus was speaking metaphorically. They, they even thought perhaps he's being a little bit more, a little bit morose. But interestingly, Jesus predicted almost verbatim that same prediction two more times. They drew no hope from that now because, I mean, come on, they'd seen him accused. They saw him mocked and abused. They, they, they saw uh, how to satisfy the Jews. The Romans had crucified him quickly after four hasty trials. And, and it was almost like the, the Romans just wanted to dispose of the problem and they crucified him as an afterthought. Even more, they saw him suffer. The Lord, the the Messiah, the, the King, the one who would inherit David's throne was was bleeding and crying and sweating great drops of blood. They heard him make loud cries and agony from the cross. And finally they saw a Roman centurion thrust a spear under his ribs and into his heart, ending all hope. This was just some cruel dream and that he would come down from his cross. No, this was certainly the end. They hoped now, the very best hope they had was just to quietly slip away, stay under the radar, and hopefully avoid a rendezvous with their own cross. But three of the women that was part of their band, part of their group, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and another of Christ's followers named Salome, they, they, they still came to the tomb that Sunday morning to embalm Jesus' body. See, they'd been prohibited to do it the day before since there was the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day had begun on Friday evening and lasted till Saturday evening. So they're just being able to come and and prepare his body. But these sweet ladies, they were determined to serve the Lord just one more time, one last time. And but when they approached the tomb, they were a little perplexed. Why? Because they were concerned that when they got there, they wouldn't even have access to his body to do what they had come to do. They knew that Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy follower of Jesus and one of the Jewish ruling council, had requested that Pilate release the body to him to be buried in a brand new tomb that he had recently dug out for himself. They'd helped him quickly Friday night wrap the body and, and place it in the tomb before the Sabbath began on Friday night. And when they were finished, Joseph had a massive stone rolled in front of the entrance to protect the body from being disturbed. But the Jewish rulers had gone to Pilate as well, just like Joseph of Arimathea, the Jewish rulers had gone to Pilate. See, they had heard that Jesus had claimed while he was still alive that he would rise from the dead. And this rumor, as they believed it to be, gave them a great cause for concern because his followers were fanatics, in their opinion. What if his followers try to steal the body and perpetuate some kind of hoax, they asked. Well, we've got to stop something like that from happening. So Pilate, at their request, had the tomb officially sealed and even had a guard posted at the tomb around the clock. If anybody tried any funny business, they were going to pay. So these women approach. They're carrying the spices and the oils that they would need to anoint the Lord's remains. And and, and I can just imagine that they're there and they're fretfully asking one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Uh, They certainly couldn't roll it away. It was way too heavy. If the stone were to be removed, it would have to be done by someone so much stronger than they were. Besides the stone, what about the soldiers? How could they convince a detachment of Roman warriors to defy their orders and let them do what they have to do for Jesus? Their situation was pretty hopeless. But in faith, they made their way to the place where Jesus had been buried. So they must face the fact that they're out of option. Because even if they exercise and exert every bit of it, their strength will contribute nothing to change their situation. Nothing they can do. If they are to be helped, that help is going to come for them from somewhere else. Approaching the tomb, something strange happened. And it took their breath away. The the Bible says, looking up, they saw that the stone had been, past tense, rolled back. It was very large. I love the way that Mark adds that little detail. He's like, like, don't miss what I'm saying here, guys. It was a huge stone. The large rock covering the, the opening of the tomb was now off to the side lying flat. The mouth of the tomb was wide open and they were shocked to say the least. Furthermore, the Roman seal had been broken. If you broke a Roman seal by law, you would be executed without a trial. But the seal was, was completely broken, and there were no soldiers to be found anywhere. Something strange had certainly taken place that morning, and what? They had no idea what it was. Later, they would discover that there had been an earthquake, and that angels had appeared, and they had flicked the stone away like a mosquito. The soldiers had trembled with fear so much at this vision that they fainted dead away. When those soldiers eventually Went back into the city, they were intercepted by the Jewish rulers who concocted a story to keep the soldiers from getting in trouble with the Roman overlords and to prevent people from knowing what they had seen. <laughs> but how can you keep a story from this likely, like this from leaking? You can't do it. You can't do it. I'm telling you, people start getting up out of their grave, people are going to find out. So their heart's racing. The women approach the wide open tomb and they cautiously peer in. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Yeah, I'll bet. The young man was an angel, a messenger straight from heaven, and what a message he had. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. If they needed evidence, the angel says, come on, come on in. Make yourselves at home. Come see the place where they lay. There's no riddles here to be unlocked. There's no secret religious knowledge you have to acquire. There's no special access to be granted. The announcement was clear. He's alive. Come and see. But there was more to be said. Now go, go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He wouldn't just be a ghost. He wasn't going to, when they were all huddled in a room, come out and go, "Woo!" He was going to be there. He wasn't going to be a legend, a rumor, a myth. He would show himself to be alive. The Bible tells us to more than 500 people before his ascension. And Luke tells us in Acts that he would do so. He would show his life with many convincing proofs. The disciples would see the Lord. They would touch him and they would share meals with him. Thomas would place his finger in the nail prints in his hands and his hand in the scar on his side where where he was pierced. How their hearts would rejoice. But did you notice that specifically the angel gave instructions to let Peter know that he was coming to him? I love that. I love that. Peter was humbled at this moment by his failure. He had blown it. He had made such loud boasts of what he would not do, and he did exactly the thing that he said he would not do. He was so embarrassed. But Peter was about to have his heart lifted because he was going to hear words of reconciliation and restoration straight from the mouth of the Lord. It was a wonderful thing. It's always a wonderful thing. When you've blown it, I don't know if any of you guys ever have, I'm going to make a safe assumption that you may have, It's a wonderful thing when you've blown it and you you get to hear words of acceptance and forgiveness and restoration. It's something that not nearly enough people experience for one hand because the others of us are so, uh, you know, slow to forgive. But on the other side, sometimes it's our own fault because when we feel guilty and shamed, we tend to hide away in our guilt and shame. But see, Jesus never, listen to me carefully, Jesus never lets one of his little lambs wander away to bear their shame by themselves. He never does it. He never does it. On the contrary, he said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. And he talked about how he leaves the 99 secure and healthy sheep so that he can go seek out that one. That's what he was doing with Peter. In Peter's darkest, lowest moment, Jesus was saying, hold on, Peter, I'm coming for you. You belong to me, and I never lose one of mine. The disciples would soon understand that those three predictions Jesus made uh, before his uh, his crucifixion were absolutely true. They would know what Jesus meant when he said that he would rise again. And because he had said that, because he did what he said he would do, these 11 guys would never be the same again. They would never be. It changed the trajectory of their life. When Jesus is dead, they are hiding. When Jesus is alive, they are preaching even under threat of death. In fact, all of them but John would eventually die martyrs' death, and not pretty ones either. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was also crucified, but only after two days of preaching to his executors from the cross. He proclaimed the gospel with his dying breath for 48 hours before he expired. I love that. James was thrown down from the pinnacle of the temple by the Jewish leaders. And having survived that fall, he was beaten to death with a club. Matthew was run through with a sword as a missionary in Ethiopia. Thomas, a missionary in India, was speared through. Nathaniel was flogged to death. Paul was beheaded by Nero. In fact, with John, he survived, but they tried to boil him in oil. But God had other plans for him. So it just became a spa treatment for him, basically. God protected him miraculously, and so they wound up exiling him to the Isle of Patmos for a few years. That didn't kill him. So he he wound up and became a bishop, and, and he was the only one of the 12 that died peacefully. He was 93 or 94 at the time. They all died for one simple reason, folks, because they would not recant what they had seen. They believed with all of their heart and proclaimed that they had seen the risen Lord Jesus. Seeing your friend murdered and then having lunch with him three days later can have a weird effect on you. A bona fide resurrection will change you forever. A bona fide resurrection will change you forever. When people rise from the dead, you can't, you can't be indifferent towards that fact. If you believe it, it will change you. If you don't believe it, it will damn you. But you cannot help to be effect, but to be affected by a bona fide resurrection. It wasn't just seeing Christ alive that changed them, though. It was it was this realization from the Holy Spirit of what this resurrection meant. How could they fear persecution if Jesus' rising proved that sin could really be forgiven and righteousness granted to sinners like us? If the threats of the devil were emptied of their power because now all authority was vested in Jesus. If the power of death was really vanquished and Jesus guaranteed to all who repent and believe eternal life, if you really believe those things, what must you fear? This is how the writer of Hebrews said it. He said, since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he, and let me add in parentheses here, who was eternal, himself partook of the same things, flesh and blood. He became a man that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of the of death. Listen to me if you're here today and you're scared of the devil, if you're here and you're scared that the devil can somehow can stick his foot out in front of you and trip you and you can you can mess up your salvation, you don't understand how powerful the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. Because he rose, he died, and he rose to destroy the one who had the power of death. And if you're wondering who that is, the Hebrews writer is going to tell you that is the devil. And he was he did this to deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Understand what he's saying there? He's saying that these these disciples at one point looked forward to looked at death that, that they could be taken by the Jewish leaders and the Romans could put them on a cross just like Jesus, and it scared them to death. But once they knew that the power of death, the power of the one who held the fear of death, was destroyed, psh, bring it on, baby. Bring it on. We have nothing to fear. This is the meaning. Listen to me, folks. This is the meaning of the resurrection. It's not just a happy little story an excuse for you to hide the, the product of poultry in your yard for your kids to find. This is the meaning of the resurrection. Freedom from the fear of that which seems inevitable. Freedom from the fear of things that that are out of our control. Listen to me. Listen to me. All of us will come to a point in our life where we realize there's way too much sin for us to ever make restitution for it. We will never climb out of this ditch on our own. There's way too much heartache in life to ever find comfort in any of the work of our own hands. There's way too many things that are out of our control. Our health, our relationship, our finances, you name it, it's all out of our control. And all of us will come to a point in our lives where that disaster, where we realize that disaster has come of everything that we have put our trust in. Where every ship that we have tried to sail in has sunk to the bottom of the sea. And so we will cry out, who will roll away the stone for us? Who will roll away the stone for us? You haven't reached that point. I don't want to be antagonistic today, but if you have not reached that point yet where you realize that you need someone to roll away a stone for you, may I suggest that you're too young, you're too self-righteous, or you're too deceived. But take my word for it. The day is coming when you will find that your supply of strength has run completely dry And it is no help for what's ahead of you. You will not dig your way out of it. And listen, I'm not talking about just dealing with bad days at work or at school. I'm not talking about just simple job or family-related stresses. I'm not talking about the mere problems of life that we all experience and will continue to experience. I'm talking about the big questions, and we all have them. What is my life all about Am I truly loved? Can I be truly loved? Can I ever be forgiven? Can my broken heart be mended? Can I just stop doing the things that are destroying me? Does anything really matter? What is going to happen to me when this life is over? Will I just cease to exist and it'll all be meaningless or is it much worse? Will I Stand in judgment and give an account for every word and deed and thought. Any rational person pondering those types of questions is bound to throw their hands up in the air and cry, absolute futility, everything is futile. We realize the deeper we go in our minds to ponder those questions, we realize that we are spiritually dead. We're literally zombies. We are the walking dead. So we try to amass stuff and achieve status to try to give ourselves some sense of, of, of purpose and importance. We stare at screens all day long so that we can try to medicate our growing and gnawing desperation. We trade playthings for purpose. We try to convince ourselves that things really aren't that bad for us. <laughs> we may even try to convince ourselves that the end will never come for us. But by the grace of God, and make no mistake, it is by the grace of God, we all sometimes experience moments of clarity where we understand the true nature of things. We see things as they really are, and from the depths of our broken souls, we cry out, who will roll away the stone for us? It's too big. It's too heavy. Who will roll away the stone for us? But listen to me. Listen, I love this. The good news of the Gospel is that God did not roll the stone away so that a handful of women could get to Jesus, but so that Jesus could get out to be a blessing and salvation for the whole world. And that includes you. The same God that raised Jesus from the dead can remove anything that's keeping you from Jesus if you only believe. Your sin, no matter how great, no matter how ugly and scandalous, is no match for Him. The Bible says that He will remove it as far As the east is from the west, your stumbling, your constant failure is no obstacle to the Most High God. The Bible says that he takes us and he lifts us up from the muddy pit of destruction and he sets our feet on the rock. The devil, he's no threat to God's plans. The Bible says clearly that Jesus came and lived and was crucified and raised and ascended to destroy all of the devil's work. Listen When he rolls away the stone, he invites you in and he says, hey, come see the place where he lay. In other words, Christ wants to give you not just a belief in the resurrection, but he wants to give you evidence of his resurrection as he comes and smashes the power of sin and death in you and he makes you brand new. That's what he wants to do in you. Romans 8:11 says, if the spirit of him, this is an incredible promise. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What that, what's that saying? It's saying the, the same spirit that walked into a tomb 2,000 years ago in Judea and raised Jesus and made him brand new is living in you if you put your trust in him, and he is working to make you brand new. That's what the, that's what the story is. There's a great story in Luke's Gospel, and it takes place the, the, day, the very day of the resurrection, and it illustrates this point very well. And I'd like to close by reading this to you. I'm putting it up on the screen. It's fairly long, but I'm, reading, I'm going to read it in a few sections. And I'm putting it up on the screen so you can read along with me, because I really want you to hear what's being said here. Luke 24:13. that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? It's, a, it's like Jesus has stepped in to human history on September 12th 2001 and said, Hey, what's been going on in New York these last couple of days? It's like this major tragedy has happened in their hometown. And he's like, Hey, what's been going on? And, and so Cleop- Cleopas is naturally stunned. And they, and, and so Jesus said to him, I love this. Jesus said to him, what things don't you love it when Jesus plays coy, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. Listen to verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive, and some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found that just as the women had said, but him they did not see. When these two guys in verse 21 say, but we had hoped he was the one. They're speaking the very language of people who need to see the stone rolled away. These guys knew what it was like to have big questions. A stone now stood between them and their heart's desire and they had no hope now. But watch what Jesus does. He said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and acted as if he and he acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us for It is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. See, their problem, these two guys' problem was no different than yours and mine. See, any sin that plagues us at any time is only a variant of the chief sin. Which is unbelief. Any sin that you find yourself entangled by is because at some point you have stopped believing that God was enough to satisfy you. It's always unbelief. And that was their sin too. Jesus points this out when he says that they're foolish, and he says that they're slow of heart to believe. So mercifully he gives them a basis for belief. I love this. What's the basis for belief? Well, it's the entire Old Testament. He explains to them how Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses parting the Red Sea, David and Goliath, Jonah and the big fish, all of it was all pointing to him, every bit of it. But that's not all he did. He, he depicted for them in, in visual living drama what had just happened in Jerusalem by taking the bread, by breaking it and sharing it with them. And their eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit as they remembered that it was he who was the bread of life. And that he gave his body on that cross to nourish the world. Listen to the rest of the story, verse 32, and they said to each other, "Did our hearts did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11, and those who were with them gathered, and they said, and can you imagine this announcement? the Lord has risen indeed and that he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how, listen, he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So two men who had no hope, no future, no strength to fix their situation, they needed someone to roll the stone away for them. So Jesus gives them the word that they might believe. You cannot just kind of work up belief you have to have a belief that's based in something and i'm telling you if it's not in this book it's not enough you cannot have an experience deep enough to make you believe your belief must be based on what god himself has said but that's not all jesus did he then gives him them himself in his fellowship on the road and and then he gives him himself in the breaking of the bread and Luke tells us that he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So this message wouldn't matter much at all unless I ask you this morning, who needs a stone rolled away this morning? Where are you? Who, who is it that, that would be honest enough with Jesus who is here, who's present, who's walking the rows and the aisles of this room, who would be honest enough to say, Jesus, there's a big rock in my way. It's keeping me from you, and I need it removed. Can I just do you a big favor, save you a lot of time and energy by telling you that you do not have the strength to move it on your own? But if you'll look up, if you'll trust Jesus, If you leave the work to him, you will find that he will not only move stones, but he'll move mountains to clear a path for you. But don't deceive yourself. You can't hype yourself up to see these stones rolled away. You can't try harder, do better, be more religious than you were yesterday. You can only repent of trying it your own way and place all of your trust in Jesus to be your only answer. Not an accessory. But your only answer. See, Jesus Christ will never agree to be your fallback. He is no one's plan B. So what what is your stone this morning? What's the rock that's blocking your path to Jesus? Do you need forgiveness? Do you need freedom from some fear, depression, addiction? Do you need peace for the storm you find yourself, grief from the pain in your heart? Do you need strength to believe, strength to make it? It's all found to Him in the same place. See, He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. He is the bread. He is the bread. The bread is His body for you. Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Can today be the day that you place your trust in the Lord? Can today be the day that you look to his broken body and find the healing that you're looking for there. Jesus has been raised up, and if you'll just look up, you'll live. If you'll just look up, you'll live. If you'd like to talk to me about how to place your trust in Jesus, maybe for the very first time, if you'd like to talk to me about how to be sure you're a Christian if you have doubts, or if you just want to make a new start to a faith that you know has grown way too cold, I would love to talk to you after the service. Pastor David would love to talk to you after the service. Don't put it off. In the same way the Bible tells us that he also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Is your sin a black stain on your soul this morning, the blood of Jesus can make the foulest sinner clean if you only believe. If you only believe. He said, this cup is a brand new covenant between you and God. This this one's not based on your goodness. It's based on His goodness. Anyone who asks can drink this cup of unfiltered mercy and be made brand new.